Welcome to the Open Apple Podcast, where we celebrate the Apple II. Whether you're a longtime user, a nostalgic visitor, or a newcomer to the community, join us as we share news and memories of Steve Wozniak's most famous personal computer. Live from the internet, it's Open Apple, starring Mike McGinnis. Woo! Yay! And Ken Gagney. And the crowd goes wild. Yeah! Hi, Mike. Hey, Ken. How are you? Fine. How are you? I'm doing all right. Ready for another episode of the Open Apple Podcast, where you and I celebrate the Apple II, Steve Wozniak's, and Steve Jobs' most famous personal computer? I look forward to it all month, every month. Me too. I hope we're not the only ones. Well, we might be in limited company. <laughs> well, before we get too far into the show, I think I have something that deserves top billing on this show, and that is an apology to last month's guest. Me? Oh. <laughs> I apologize to you every month. <laughs> That's true, yes. We need to apologize to Egan Ford, who was our guest on the March episode of Open Apple. He came on the show and he talked to us about many subjects, including his research into whether the 6502 was faster or slower than the 8088. He spoke about the subject at length, and then after we were done recording, but before we published the show, the episode, as all episodes of Open Apple do, go th through an extensive editing process where we manipulate the audio tracks to reduce noise, to move conversations around to improve the flow, to remove any sort of uh, verbal stumbling that we are guilty of. We have never made a secret of the fact that this is an edited show. In fact, we have gone behind the scenes at Kansas Fest and released that episode in September of 2011 so that people could see more about our process. During that stage, we were informed that Egan had gotten a reference to which was faster or slower backwards. And due to a miscommunication, we thought that that mistake was consistently made throughout the episode. So at any point where he said the 8088 was faster than the 6502, which he did say repeatedly, we reversed it in the editing so that in the final episode, which everybody heard, Egan was heard to say the 6502 was faster than the 8088. And that is not true. In fact, he only made that mistake once in the episode and not anywhere else. He spoke lengthily and consistently about how the 8088 is faster, and we manipulated his audio to have him say something that he did not say. And the edit was made in good faith. We were trying to correct what we thought was a mistake. By the time we found out the error, the episode had been downloaded too many times, and it was too late to go back and re-edit it and re-release it. So we immediately pushed a apology on our blog, and we promised that we would make that apology again here on this episode for those who didn't see the written version. And so there you have it. I apologize to our guest, and I apologize to anybody who listens to the show and felt deceived. It was not our intent. I feel like we need the prices right loser music to play right about now. Also, a, a small mistake in the description for this episode, we called Egan the creator of Apple Game Server, which is actually a separate product. The product that Egan made is Apple II Game Server Online. So we dropped the Roman numeral two and the adjective online, but that is the full name of his product. I believe his code is actually based on the original, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And, and is that by Brendan Roberts? Yes, it is. Yes. It goes, I think, by Blurry. Yes. So our apologies to him as well. Yeah. 
Indeed. Uh, well, hopefully we can move on. Is there anything going on with you, Mike, that you care to share? Um, not related to the Apple II, no. What about you, Ken? Uh, not too much. I just have two quick anecdotes from my sure, backyard sure. in Boston. Uh, one is that I went to a monthly WordPress meetup in Boston because it is the largest WordPress meetup group in the world. And I brought my students there because I'm teaching at Emerson College in Boston. As we were leaving, I saw a gentleman with Star Trek, Apple, and RSS logos on his jacket. And even though he already has headphones on, I nonetheless called him out and said, hey, nice jacket. And he took his headphones off and we started chatting. And uh turned out he had just moved here from the Midwest and uh, because his wife got a job at MIT, I said, oh, I work at MIT. Here's my card. And he's, you know, smiling, gratefully takes my card, looks at it, and he just kind of stops and stares at it. And he says, wait a minute, Ken Gagne? Retro computing Ken Gagne? I'm like, yes. He said, hi, I'm David Ross. I, I go by C64 on Twitter. I'm like, oh, yeah, we've tweeted at each other. Hi, nice to meet you. So that was a very small world. It's not often that you meet not only another retro computing enthusiast, but somebody you know on Twitter in real life. Well, that's just because you're famous, Ken. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> I think he would have just as easily recognized you or anybody else at Kansas Fest. Well, possibly. But yes, only I was... because I, I just tend to irritate everyone. <laughs> you're memorable, Mike. <laughs> For a reason, Ken. Yes. So I was grateful to meet him, and I look forward to bumping into him again. Oh, good. Uh, also related to my Emerson class, I have been calling in all the favors of everybody I know to populate my curriculum with guest speakers. Two weeks ago, we had Mr. Jason Scott come in and speak for an hour and a half. He is an alumnus of the school where I am teaching, so he had a unique perspective. Just an hour and a half? <laughs> oh, it sounds like you know Mr. Scott. Oh, I've spent some time talking to him, yes. Uh, he didn't come with any prepared material. He just had... Uh, he let the students guide the conversation with questions, and he would speak at length on each question. So there were maybe four or five questions over the hour and a half. And he talked about archiving and copyright and his career path after graduating from Emerson College and Sockington the Cat. Uh, but it was interesting. I was very glad to have him in the area. In fact, he used the trip as an opportunity to pick up an Apple II floppy disk collection from the Rhode Island Apple Group, a elderly member of the group who's been there for decades was trying to clean out the house, and so Jason's trunk was just filled to the brim with Apple II floppies as a result of this trip to New England. Nice. Yeah. And then the week after that, my guest speaker was Mr. Kevin Savitz of Savitz Publishing. Who we had on the show recently. That's right, back in December. He has quite the online publishing empire, and I don't think I fully appreciate both the extent of his empire and the career path that brought him there until I read his neat memoir, Terrible Nerd. And so I had him Skype into the class and do a video chat where he talked about all those things to my students. Nice. Yeah, he was a remarkably entertaining speaker. He uh, was very much at ease speaking to my students. He knew all his material, and he was very receptive to the questions. So it was a, it was a really entertaining hour. Excellent. Yeah. So I'm glad to bring this retrocomputing angle into my class, and I'm glad that the retrocomputing community has introduced me to so many professionals who are so accomplished in their fields. Now, speaking of retrocomputers and work, have you had the chance to set up your 2GS yet? Oh, yes. I brought that in about a month and a half ago. I got IT's permission, although I'm not sure I needed it, but just you know to be political sure, about yeah. it or politic. Uh, they thought it was an old Macintosh that I was bringing in and one that was older than me, and neither is the case, but whatever. 
They can believe what they want. And it's not on... No, wait, it is on the network. That's right. I did plug in my Uthernet card, and it is up and running. So, yeah, it's working great. Does it generate any conversation? Uh, Some people come in and comment on it. In fact, they hired a grad student to profile me for the new employee newsletter or whatever. And uh, she said, what do you like to do in your spare time? And we talked about this a little bit on the last episode, but I pointed the Apple II. And she said, oh, what do you play on that, Zork? And I thought... (laughs) I'm like, well, that's a throwaway comment for somebody like you or me. But coming from someone you've never met before, I I had to ask her, how do you even know what Zork is? And she said, oh, I did my graduate thesis on interactive fiction. Oh, cool. Yeah, she apparently wrote a game engine like Inform, but for the one laptop per child, if I recall her thesis correctly. And so she interviewed Nick Montfort, who works at MIT, and Jason Scott. So she knew all the same names I did. So it wasn't just because she saw it on the Big Bang Theory. No, actually, it's not, but that would be cool, too. Yep. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I have not been doing a lot with the Apple II, but I've been doing a lot because of the Apple II. Great. Yes. And now we are ready to move on and introduce one of my favorite people in the world. And I sort of like him, too. Hi, this is Sean Fahey, and you're listening to the Open Apple Podcast. We are so pleased to have on the podcast this month one of my personal heroes, Mr. Brent Spiner. Hi, Brent. What? Hi. I, I, my work has been a little light since the whole TNG movie series stopped, so I thought I'd go ahead and jump in on this podcast because, you know, any publicity is good publicity, right? Yeah, you know, ever since the incident, you're just unhirable. <laughs> Pretty much. So. No, we do, in fact, not have Brent Spiner on the show, although you'd never know it from meeting him at Kansas Fest. We have Mr. Duke of Earl Evans himself. Hi, Earl. Hello there, Ken. Hello, Earl. How you doing, Mike? I'm fine. It's great to be on the podcast with you guys. I really enjoy Open Apple, and it's a treat to get to be on the show. Well, we've had all the other members of RCR on the show, so it was about time we got around to you. Awesome. (laughs) Now, you are a recent convert to the Apple II, is that correct? Well, the story is that the Apple II is actually my first microcomputer ever. When I was in middle school, our teacher brought in his own personal Apple II so that us students would have a chance to bang around on it and learn some computing. And it was love at first sight for me, having just worked on systems that you had a large turnaround and punch cards and that kind of stuff. I thought, wow, a computer that fits on a desk. Did a lot of programming on the Apple II in the late 70s and early 80s, but then kind of moved away from it to other platforms and have recently rediscovered it here, uh, having an Apple IIe Platinum and learning what's going on these days in the Apple II world. So what were you using all those years, if not for the Apple II? A variety of microcomputers. Uh, As I said, I'm kind of a computer multiple personality disorder. The Tandy systems, Commodore systems, Atari systems that I used in my retail days and uh, jumped all over the place, but uh, only once had the opportunity to work for an Apple II official retailer. So during all of those years, the Apple II was kind of off my radar. So you were in microcomputer sales? That's true. I was for a few years. Sold Ataris and Commodores and for a little while there, like I say, Apple IIs. Have any good tales from the store? 
Oh, goodness. I, I think some of the funniest tales wouldn't be from the customers, but from the interaction between the uh, retail salespeople herself. Uh, you know, those were the microcomputer wars days. So we had our favorites. Mine was Commodore, and some of my friends liked Atari. And so we would like to take little jabs at each other. Y you know the drill from mm -hmm. back in the day when oh, sure. uh, you're – microcomputer of choice tended to define you. Now, at the risk of inciting a flame war, why did you prefer the Commodore 64 when the Apple II was your first? I mean, usually you never forget your first, but you seem to have just thrown it into the trash and moved on. Well, dragged it into the trash would probably be more <laughs> apropos. Um, what happened there? Well, for one thing, in our high school, we had a Commodore PET sitting in the corner, and it had that funky little keyboard that no one liked typing on. But I was hungry for computer time, so if no one else wanted to use that computer, I was happy to do so. And our school actually didn't have an Apple II at all. And school is where I spent a lot of my computing time not having a machine at home. So getting acclimated to the Commodore and its peculiarities uh, – led me to eventually getting a VIC-20 and then moving up to a Commodore 64 for the machines that I owned at home. So I think it turned out to be just a, a matter of availability. I begged my dad to buy me an Apple II. I told him I could make him uh, millions of dollars as a software entrepreneur. But as you can imagine, a uh, teenage kid telling his dad to drop $4,000 on a machine that might yield some money was kind of a tough sell back then. Yeah, and you don't exactly have a lot of purchasing power at that stage in your life. Right. Yeah, not even a paper route. <laughs> so what are you doing with your old computers nowadays? Well, I love to program them. Um, that's one of the, the things that I have the most fun with. And in fact, maybe a little later, I'll uh, share a, a new podcasting exploit that I'm launching here uh, regarding programming the old computers. But in fact, on the Apple II, I was thinking recently I wanted to take a crack at two or three of the Beagle Brothers tools that were out there that had to do with programming the Apple II. And also, uh, ever since last Kansas Fest, I've been itching to spend some hours working with the tools that Martin Hay came out with. Superman and uh, his language short. And I just haven't found the time to get around to that yet, but that's one of the things that's on my to-do list here ASAP. Mike, have you used either Martin's tools or any of the Beagle Brothers tools? No. Okay. I used Program Writer back in the day to help me with some basic programming, and it did a lot of what Ivan Drucker describes as structured AppleSoft. Uh, it's basically just a full-fledged text editor that you can write basic code in. Uh, what languages are you using, Earl? Well, they tend to jump all over the place. Uh, more I'm, I'm like a language sampler than a language expert. I like to jump around and learn about some different languages, and then I get bored and moved on. So um, one of the ones that I've looked at recently was Oxford Pascal for the C64 and also Turbo Pascal for CPM. And Right now, I'm working on a podcast for a completely different thing, uh, DBase 3 Plus. I don't know if in the DOS days you guys ever had any exposure to the DBase world, but it was an awful large ecosystem of application developers that made database 
centered applications for DOS machines. And I love DBase, made a lot of money off it and really enjoyed programming in it. So a while back, I found a shrink wrap copy on eBay and picked it up. And I've been going through that and decided that I would podcast about my experiences relearning something that I haven't really touched much in uh, probably 25 years. When I was in the military, uh, <clears throat> I I wrote many, many applications in DBase 3+. So I'm actually looking forward to hearing your uh, podcast, Earl. Cool. Yeah, there were a lot of folks. It was it was quite an approachable programming environment. Yeah, so. it, was, uh, it was very nice. Was it particularly suited to any particular kind of application? Well, the language and the database engine that it had integrated with it were nearly indistinguishable from each other, so it tended to be good for things that revolved around databases. One of the applications that I wrote at my workplace was a work order tracking system for our PC support department. So as we would get requests from people to help them on their machines or buy software, that would all go into this database application. We'd track how long it took us to do things and if things were completed, that kind of thing. It's really good for databases. Now, are you a programmer by trade today? I'm not. These days, uh, my moniker is IT manager, but I work for a small company with less than 20 people. So when it comes to computing, I actually wear a lot of hats. Uh, occasionally, I do get to do some programming, but I wouldn't call myself a professional programmer. But there is something that you do on a professional level, even if you don't get paid for it, though you should. For those who don't know, you have a podcast of your own, actually a couple of them, I believe. The RetroBits podcast I've been doing since about 2005. It used to be weekly, and now it's kind of whenever I get around to it. Um, actually, I'm switching that around, and I, I kind of think of RetroBits as undead right now. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of a zombie podcast because it, it pops up when you least expect it. But I'm actually putting that back on the track to get it out monthly. And as long as we're chatting about it, I guess I can go ahead and throw out that I'm starting a couple of related podcasts that will be part of the RetroBits family. Uh, one is uh, actually what we were just talking about, programming on old computers. I'm lighting up a podcast called Next Without Four, and that will be uh, about programming computers, whether it was using languages that were around back in the day or using some of the language environments like Martin's uh, monitor and, and his short language or CC65 for C programming or, you know, any of the uh, scores actually of languages and programming environments that are coming out these days, but targeted toward the retro computers. Uh, the other podcast probably won't be of much interest to open Apple listeners. Uh, it's titled Chicken Lips Radio, and it is about Commodore systems. Uh, there actually isn't a podcast regarding Commodore computers at the moment. There are some podcasts that are in the Commodore sphere, like the C64 Takeaway for the uh, chiptunes music, but none that's, uh, what would I say, a, a analog to open Apple in the Commodore world. So I'll be putting that one out there as well. Hopefully all of them will be once a month and I'll have more news on that as we go forward. Now, Chicken Lips, that makes me think of another YouTube channel called Rooster Teeth. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. Well, <laughs> you won't find much relevance there. In fact, I once recommended it to my high school students if, and then I went home and actually 
took a closer look at the channel, I had to go back to my students and say, I take it back. Please, if you, your parents catch you watching that channel, I didn't recommend it to you. <laughs> so uh, not, not family friendly, but very funny. Well, Chicken Lips Radio will actually be it, – it, it's part of RetroBits. It'll be another one of the applicable for all ages podcasts, or I, I should at least say suitable, maybe not applicable. But <laughs> um, the, the the Chicken Lips moniker comes from what the Commodore engineers and people who worked at Commodore uh, would refer to the Commodore logo as. If you can imagine that C with the kind of pointed uh, – uh, appenditures uh, coming out the right-hand side of it, um, it reminded people of uh, either a chicken head or chicken lips. Yeah, and I can see so, that. So, uh, yeah, it's a stretch, but <laughs> <laughs> but it's there. So I thought that might be a lighthearted title for the podcast and kind of an homage to those uh, Commodore engineers. Now, this all sounds rather ambitious. Not only are you one-third of the Retro Computing Roundtable show and you're you have your own retro bits that you're planning on bringing back, but you're also creating Next Without Four and Chicken Lips. So this is this is quite the podcasting slate you're proposing. It is. It actually, uh, when I look at it in uh, from one perspective, it looks like a mountain of work. Um, on the other hand, uh, life circumstances have accommodated before doing retro bits once a week. And so I'm actually kind of used to that routine. I think somewhere I just kind of slipped off the tracks. And uh, you guys know how that goes with the retro computing hobbies. And uh, Ken in particular, I recall at one point you making some priority decisions and even getting some public feedback on what sort of things you should dial in your time on. And uh, I'm kind of doing the, the same sort of thing here. I'm thinking that... Uh, I'll be narrowing down some of my hobby activities, but turning up the volume on the podcasting and getting back into that in a more industrious fashion, because I actually do really enjoy it. So what are you dropping to make room for these new podcasts? Uh, perhaps some of my own programming hobbies, or in some cases, just whatever the muse is calling me uh, to that to do that particular week. Uh, for instance, is uh, recently... Because the Python language is so popular, and especially for the Raspberry Pi, which I picked up one of those not too long ago, I started learning Python and watching some uh, webcasts that were on YouTube about how to program Python. Uh, and I'd spent uh, a couple hours, three hours on that, when all of a sudden I realized, hey, I'm just going down one of those rat holes again of technology. It's not that this isn't valuable stuff to learn, but it's not really fitting with my core priorities. What am I doing? I, mm -hmm. I need to be a little bit more intentional about the way that I spend my technology hobby time. And I think that's going to free up some time to be able to uh, get some of these other things out. It's very challenging, though, to start doing something that you enjoy and realize that it's not a priority. Yes, absolutely. You have to be somewhat disciplined. <laughs> And if we were disciplined, we probably wouldn't be spending all our money on 30-year-old computers in the first place. <laughs> Maybe true. <laughs> Valid point. Get what's new and exciting in retro computing with two news. So our first news item uh, this month is, of course, the annual opening of the Kansas Fest registration period. Woohoo! Yay! Of course, this year's keynote speaker is... Uh, Apple employee number six, Randy Wigginton. 
If you register before June 1st, you guarantee the early bird price of $375 for a double room or $445 for a single, which includes admission to all sessions as well as most meals. You can also order Kansas Fest t-shirts. These are extra and optional and must be ordered by May 31st. Registration for staying on site closes on July 8th. I've sent in my check, so I'll definitely be there. They actually have a really nice online form this year where you fill out the first page with all your personal metadata, and then the second page asks check or PayPal. And that page says, if you send a check, then we'll get more of your money because PayPal won't take a cut. So they're encouraging you to pay offline, but they'll accept it either way. And the price is the same regardless of how you pay. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Will either of you be attending again this year? I can't go this year, and it's (gasps) breaking my heart. Oh, no. After going last year, I was determined to go as often as I possibly could. It's not... um, as much a matter of money this time, although that's going to factor into it, but I'm going to Japan right around the same time. It's not going to overlap, but it's close enough where I just can't manage to squeeze both of those activities in. But I will definitely be there in spirit, and I can tell anyone who's listening that hasn't been that you should go. I agree. Well, unfortunately, Earl, once you skip a year, you're never allowed to come back, so... <laughs> Oh, I didn't know about that. Sorry about that. Is that that in the bylaws? Yep, tough news. (laughs) Of course I kid. Well, why are you going to Japan, Earl? Oh, this is a lifelong dream, actually. I've been fascinated with Japan uh, and language and culture and everything like that for many, many years. And my son and I are going to go over there and spend a week, and it's going to be great. But unfortunately... That does mean that Kansas Fest 2013 can't fit into my agenda this year. Sigh. I wish there were two of me. (laughs) Uh, I think you may be the only person wishing that. (laughs) You're probably right. I think the world says one is enough. (laughs) Unless you want to do all those podcasts. That's true. Then three or four of me would be handy. And do you know Japanese? I've studied it. I wouldn't say that I know it. (laughs) Okay, so are you going to have a tour guide or something? Uh, well, no, we're just going to walk around on our own and take the uh, the train and the metro to various places. In fact, we'll be taking the train from Tokyo to Osaka and spending some time down there in, in that region. And I do have a friend from there who was my Japanese tutor when she was here in the United States, and I'm hoping maybe that we would get an opportunity to stop into the city of Nara and say hello to her while we're there. Cool. I believe Tony Diaz has been to Japan. You might want to hit him up for some tips about where to go. Oh, cool. Will do. Do we have any Apple II users from Japan? I I don't remember seeing any on the Apple II enthusiast group on Facebook. I know I have a couple of JuiceGS subscribers out there, though. Uh, We do have – what is that website – um, there's a, there's a, actually a, a, somebody in Japan is producing Apple II hardware, things like USB interfaces. All right. Um, yeah. And Sean posted that recently in CSA2 and I, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of the. Of course. I don't know why I didn't think of this immediately. We have Mr. Bill Martins in Japan, but yeah, the proprietor of the call Apple website is out there. So I don't know, I don't know exactly where in Japan he is Earl, but I, and granted you're not going to Japan to see Washington state natives, but <laughs> you know, it's kind of like traveling around the world to see what's right in your own backyard, uh, you, since you're in Portland, Oregon, right? I am. It's always fun, though, to bump into somebody um, in a situation like that. So with any luck, he'll be listening to the show, and he'll drop you a note with an invitation to tea. 
excellent. Or it wouldn't be tea, it'd be sake? Uh, a little sake wouldn't be bad. Okay, cool. All right, so yeah, Kansas Fest is July 23rd to the 28th. Be there or be square. Now, we have Mr. Wigington at this year's Kansas Fest, but he was at another Apple event a mere 29 years ago, and that video was recently unearthed. That video having originally been shot right in your own backyard, Mike. Indeed. This is, what, 90 minutes worth of video uh, of Randy and Waz at the Denver Apple Pie out here. At uh, at the time, they were meeting at the Colorado School of Mines in Golden. And it's Waz being his, his typical jovial self and sharing anecdotes and having a good time with the crowd. Uh, there is a YouTube playlist that you can that you can pull up and that will play the the videos were I guess separated into four and five minute chunks because there was a, a problem with the sound sync um, on the original but it looks like he also the guy that posted these also included uh, four uh, longer videos that you can watch if you don't want to do it that way what was the source of those videos who dug them up because that's pretty amazing you're going through a stack maybe of VHS tapes and whoa, look what I found. Uh, they were uploaded by Vince Patton. I don't know if he's the original producer of these videos, if he shot them way back in the day, but he's the guy who converted them and uploaded them. Waz talks about various topics such as being put on probation for computer abuse at the University of Colorado in Boulder, uh, quitting his job at Apple, uh, pranks, uh, his dial-a-joke phone line, and of course his relationship with Steve Jobs. Sounds like quite the tour de force of old-time text stories and gossip. Yeah, if you've got a, a few hours to kill, or I guess about 90 minutes, uh, it's definitely worth a watch. Cool. Have you watched it? I have, yes. And it was worth your time? <laughs> well, no, it wasn't worth my time, but it would be worth your time. Oh, hey, what does that mean? <laughs> I think he's insinuating he gets more per hour than you, perhaps. Can. <laughs> oh, I get it. <gasps> Well, there's an Apple schematic that's been published, and we can make a poster out of it. Yay! Actually, there's an Apple One, an Apple Two, as well as Atari, Commodore 64, Nintendo, and Sega Genesis. So of the ones that matter, there's Apple schematics. Exactly, yes. And maybe Nintendo. Okay. Maybe. Yeah, but these are uh, schematic prints posted by cityprintsmapart.com, and this is just a, uh, a single color, like uh, orange for the Apple One, green for the Apple Two, a uh, piece of paper with a white diagram of the uh, circuits inside the computers. And this is supposed to be something that you can hang on your wall and admire or baffle your visitors with. The prints themselves are $40, but if you want, they will mat and frame them for you for $180. Is that 180 total or on top of the 40 uh, I believe that's total. If you if you select one of them and choose the you have you can either order the print only option or the fifteen point seven five inch by nineteen point seven five inch mat and frame, and that's one hundred and eighty that's one hundred and eighty dollars plus ten dollars shipping plus ten dollars shipping and handling unless you want it overnight which is twenty bucks because you really got your get your hands on these right away well if I'm spending one hundred and eighty bucks another twenty dollars probably isn't going to be that big a deal to me that's yeah, the same twenty bucks if you were buying a you know a $5 paperback off Amazon. I mean, sure. Tw 20 bucks is 20 bucks. Exactly. So, but I don't know that I would actually put this up in my home office because I'm not a hardware guy and I can't appreciate the genius that goes into these designs. So it'll just be 
more of a work of modern art to me. Well, I believe that there are PDFs out there on the Internet now that are high enough quality where if you wanted to, you could probably print out your own on some some nice paper that you got at your local art store for less than $40. Do you think there are any copyright issues involved here with the people who design the schematics, so like Waz or Apple Computer Incorporated? Well, I imagine that they were at one time trade secrets, but I don't know. I mean, they're as copyrighted as any other document that comes out of Apple, I, I would think. Didn't the schematics come with the Apple II originally, way back in 77? Yeah, uh, you could um, – pretty much every piece of hardware that Apple sold at that time had, a, had a, at least a block diagram, if not the entire schematic for it included. Hmm. Sounds like a pretty lousy trade secret. Earl, would you get the Commodore poster for your home office? You know, I'm not sure, although I, I do think that schematics have a strange aesthetic appeal for me. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the symmetry that you see in the schematic diagrams, or uh, I'm not sure I can put my finger on it, but I have a strange sense of aesthetics, too. I think that a well-maintained ham radio antenna and tower is a beautiful thing, whereas my wife thinks it's a monstrosity. So <laughs> so no accounting for taste, but uh, I do think these look pretty nice. I'm not sure I'd spend $40 on one, but that may just be a more a reflection of my piggy bank. Yeah, I think I would top out at $25 for one of these. At that price, I would get one, but 40 that's, I don't know. It's, uh, I guess I'm just not that much of an art lover. Too bad. It's a cool concept. We have some more internal looks at the Apple II that were recently unearthed. Uh, CNET recently popularized the publication of, by Digibarn, which is a museum in the Santa Cruz Mountains of California, about the original contracts and documents and schematics for the Disk II floppy drive and the operating system that powered it. This article talks about how the Apple II was released with only a cassette drive and that that would never be the basis for a business machine because they were so slow and unreliable, those cassette drives. So it was originally, it was eventually outsourced to Mr. Paul Lawton or Lofton, and he wrote the entire operating system for the floppy drive in just 35 days, which is no small feat. I mean, can you imagine writing OS 10 in just a month and having it actually work? Obviously, computers are much more complex nowadays and need a more complex operating system. But nonetheless, this operating system that Paul wrote as a contract employee for Shepardson Microsystems worked. He gave it over to Apple, and Apple, of course, went on to become one of the powerhouses in the business and edutainment or educational industries in the late 70s and early 80s. So now, was this DOS 3.3 that we're talking about, or was it an earlier version, or...? I think it would have been DOS 3.1. The early versions were 3.1 and 3.2, which were, I think, the 13-sector versions. DOS 3.3 was the one that they finished up on uh, and that lasted forever and and, and um, was finally superseded by ProDOS. And I think the fascinating aspect of this story to me was that Apple didn't create the disk operating system in-house I'd never heard that before, that they actually outsourced that component. Apple was even looking at CPM at one point, uh, but Waz said that he thought it was clunky and that he was, that quote, I was looking for something easier to use. Isn't there a CPM card for the Apple II? There is. That okay. came, that came, the Z80 cards, but those, those came much later, I think. 
Uh, Waz is confident that he could have built a good one himself, but his co-founder couldn't wait. Quote, Steve Jobs, who didn't have patience for a project that took more than a week, found Shepard Microsystems and they sounded eager and knowledgeable, so we hired them. That seems like a good reason to hire a company, and it all worked out fine. Yeah, this story has gotten quite a bit of press. It showed up on CNET, on the unofficial Apple web blog. Yeah, so it showed up on quite a few sites, so this has become quite the story. It's it's neat to see all these things, whether it's a Waz video from 84 or a schematic from 77 suddenly being unearthed. It shows just how much more history there is to be documented. Yeah, it looks like these uh, that Lawton, Lofton donated these documents to Digibarn, and that's how they made their way onto the web. Digibarn, if you haven't been to their website, has a lot of really cool and unique information there. Definitely worth checking out. I agree. Yeah, they they do have a a great, uh, lots of great resources for information. I think this was quite a score too for the Digibarn. I like uh, Lawton's quote here. Can you imagine delivering an operating system in just thirty five days with no tools in particular and and partially functioning hardware? That was truly the greatest generation of programmers. <laughs> I think I would agree with that. That it seems like when computers were new, everything people were doing with them was new, and we've just been iterating on it ever since, making things faster, smaller, fancier, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Cool. To the good old days. Well, I think you had to be a whole lot more creative back then because you were certainly more tightly constrained by the limitations of the hardware that you had to work with, and you were breaking new ground. These days, I think pretty much everything's already been done, and it's just rehashing You know what's already been put out there. It's smaller, faster, um, but there's not a lot of true innovation anymore. What do you think about that, Earl? I think so much of what people were doing, they were doing for the fun of it. I I mean, they were getting paid and in some cases making tons of cash, but I don't think that was the driving factor. I think they just lived and breathed it. And you hear the stories of them staying up 16 hours, you know, 18 hour days working on these things, being obsessed about it just because it was so fascinating to them. So I I think some of that might have gotten lost along the way as well. It would be fun to see some of that coming back. You know, it's interesting you saying mentioning how so many of the some of them were making huge wads of cash. I remember when I picked up the ByteWorks how to program the Apple II in Pascal tutorial back in the late eighties, early nineties. He starts off by saying that he doesn't know any programmers who drive Porsches. <laughs> Well, that's true. Although uh, not everybody made wads of cash. Even this article that we're talking about, it turns out that they sold this DOS to Apple for a lump sum, no royalties, and it wound up being this extremely important uh, key component for the Apple II because they were going nowhere fast without a disk drive. Mm-hmm. But the company that made this for them certainly didn't cash in, just kind of like the story of uh, Microsoft buying that original IBM DOS for $50,000 from Seattle Computer Products. And then even Microsoft made BASIC for the Apple II, correct? Yes, and tons of other companies. I sometimes wonder if the popularization of computers and the monetization of the industry with everybody who... As you said, they now are programming for money instead of for the love of it has diluted the creativity. I forget who said it, but I read a quote just recently where the greatest minds of the previous generation were trying to figure out how to put man on the moon. The greatest minds of this generation are trying to figure out how to get people to click on ads. 
I saw that myself, and I found that kind of sad. <laughs> it didn't seem like something that you could really get excited about as a life mission. Yeah, the person who figures out how to get me to click on an ad, his name is not going to go down in history. Right. There's not going to be an Apollo 13 movie about him. Well, <laughs> I don't know. I, as Zuckerberg got the social network, so who knows? True. Anyway, enough about old computers. Oh, wait, what am I saying? This is a podcast. Uh, but let's move on. We have an item on the spreadsheet here about some 20 megahertz Applicard clones from Alex Freed. Uh, Mike, is this your item? It is, yes. Alex Freed recently announced on Comsys Apple II that he had uh, secured parts to make another run of his 20 megahertz uh, Applicard Z80 clone boards. Unfortunately, when the when the chips arrived from China, it turned out that the first batch were fakes and didn't work at all. And the second batch were repainted, so they were actually 8 megahertz chips. Uh, he did, fi did finally end up with a small order of chips that worked that do work at 20 megahertz. Unfortunately, uh, they all went to people who pre-ordered them, so there wasn't really an opportunity to to order more uh, to order a card if you didn't already if you weren't already on the list. Hmm, that's weird that he would actually get fake chips in the mail. Well, apparently that's a big problem. Ordering uh, hard to find chips from places like China is it's it's a common thing. I heard I've heard about it with um, especially with capacitors that uh, um, you buy a, a capacitor of a certain size and, and what they've done is they've taken an empty larger can and put it over a smaller capacitor. Oh my goodness! Well, it, and it happens in other spheres too. One of the most sought after chips. In the Commodore world is, of course, the SID music chip. As people use them in uh, external boards and that uh, for projects and other things besides just replacing the ones that go bad. And there were problems with counterfeit chips in that world as well. So you wouldn't think there'd be enough money in it to make it worth the possible legal ramifications. But Well, I mean, you're in China. You're not really subject to American lawmakers or enforcement. So... That's but, true. But you can take their money. And in fact, if you do a, a Google search just for fake capacitors, you get page after page of beware Chinese made capacitors, fake primary capacitors, and on and on and on. Uh, I think the caps are, are one of the easier ones to, to fake. And of course, if you're, if you're just repainting the numbers on chips to make it look like it's 20 megahertz instead of eight, that's probably a fairly simple thing to do as well. Well, as always, I guess caveat emptor. Yep. So did he not have an established supplier? Did the old one run out? I'm not sure on the details on that. It sounds like uh, the previous, the previous, the the company that he'd used previously had run out, and so he was looking for a new supplier and thought that he'd found a good one, and obviously that didn't happen. What is this board, Mike? Is this a 20 megahertz accelerator for an Apple II? Well, it's a it's a CPM board, so so you're oh it's okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a Z80 board with a 20 megahertz chip. Unfortunately, that doesn't apply to regular Apple II software because the the 6502 doesn't doesn't benefit at all from the, the Z80 chip. Obviously, and it sounds like this card has come up before. Yeah, his uh, initial run came out a few years ago, and it was very popular. It went pretty quickly, especially among CPM fans. It sounds like there's definitely going to be a demand for it, considering how popular the first one was. I hope he'll finally find the parts he needs and will be able to replace it, or re reissue it, rather. As do I. And it certainly seemed like the price was reasonable for that card. Yeah, it wasn't very expensive. I thought it was 60 some dollars. I, I don't want to misquote. 
I, I thought that that's what I'd read over on ATU Central. Let's see. Well, moving on, it looks like we have some other releases coming out. Uh, Mike, this also looks like your item, Mr. Bill Buckles. Indeed. Uh, Bill Buckles is a regular on CompSys Apple II, and he released a trio of Apple II graphics-related utilities. Uh, the first up is BMP to RAG, or RAG format. Um, and looking through the document, the documentation that he's released for it, Bin uh, to RAG is a high-res graphics utility. It runs on Protoss 8 on an Apple II serves two main purposes. The first is round-trip conversion between binary save full-screen high-res HDR images and full-screen mixed-screen raster-oriented HDR images, uh, BOT and TOP files, and raster-oriented HDR image fragments, RAG. Binterag produces raster-oriented HDR image fragments from the formats noted above. Wow. So who is this aimed at? I I think this is for people wanting to take be able to take screenshots with their Apple Win, um, or their, their Apple II emulators and use them on a real Apple II and vice versa. Okay. I can see that. The next utility that he released was one called BMP to RAG, uh, which does the same thing. BMP to RAG converts a 280 by 190 Windows B, uh, Windows BMP file to an Apple II based HGR. And finally, Bill has released HMonster, a monster of a high-res graphics converter for Windows BMP files. Uh, especially for serious Apple II high-res graphics fans, Apple Win power users, and Apple II graphics programmers, uh, especially Aztec C65 programmers, HMonster is a high-res graphics converter now available for free download. It's a command-line round-trip conversion utility for HDR bitmap graphics and Windows BMP files. So these are fairly specific and aimed clearly at programmers who want to easily move graphics back and forth between their modern desktop and their Apple II. But they're free, and if that's your thing, you can check them out now. Now, when you say command line utility, does this run on the Apple II? Does it run on Windows, Unix? Uh, HMonster looks like it runs on the Apple II. Or, I'm sorry, on, on Windows. Oh, okay. Yeah, and this this will grab an image from your Apple Win emulator and allow you to use it in Windows. Okay, so these are mostly DOS utilities then. Yes. Gotcha. I think Brutal Deluxe also recently released a DOS utility of sorts. Did they? That would be Mr. Sprite. I took a look at the documentation for this, and it was well above me, but it is categorized as a cross-platform development tool. It also runs on Windows, and it's used to, according to the documentation, manage sprites and to simplify the integration of sprites into Apple II GS games. Sprites, of course, are the uh, discrete... And, uh, animated figures like Mario in the original Super Mario Brothers, uh, a character who moves around the screen. Not used so much nowadays. A lot of 3D video game systems use polygons, but sprites are created from pixels. And this is a Windows utility to help you manage all the different animations. Because Mario, for example, you know he can stand, he can crouch, he can jump, he can run, he can walk. He can... And this is a way to uh, sort through all those different animations uh, and also mirror them so that when he's facing left or right, the documentation shows it being used with a sword play game like Rastin or something like that. Again, this is very much aimed at programmers, at people whose programs are using graphics, sprites especially, of course. And so I haven't really taken a close look at it myself because I am not a graphic artist, I'm not a programmer, and I don't use Windows. <laughs> so uh, they're three Strike for three, three on me. Yeah, really. But... Uh, Nonetheless, as I've said before on this podcast, I think it's great that 
these programmers are developing tools that they personally find useful, and then they go the extra step to clean it up and release it out into the wild because you never know who else might have a use for it. Well, I think this is especially kind of a big deal for Apple II users uh, because unlike most home computers of the day, Commodore and Atari and things, the Apple had no sprite hardware built in. So there was no easy way to do that unless you bought a, a rather obscure and expensive third-party hardware card to use. And then your sprites would only work in other machines that had that sprite card in it. What about the Apple II GS? Did it have any kind of hardware support for sprites or was no. it again so it's still a, a software scenario like with yes, the apple II. Ah. exactly yep. and that's kind of why i think this is sort of a neat thing uh to to have granted it's you know 30 years ago it, it probably would have made brutal deluxe a lot of money um, but the fact that they put it out now is really cool and they have a uh, they have on their webpage uh, a subpage called Mr. Sprite Tech where they go through uh, in great detail and describe exactly how this this program works and how sprites in general work. So even if you're not going to program it, it's uh, uh, program with it or use this tool for your own project, it's still a neat thing to, to read if you're interested in that sort of technology. Well, kudos to the folks at Brutal Deluxe over in France who we had on our show this time a year ago for their... Was it our, their 30th anniversary? I think so, yeah. Yeah. They have been around for a while, and they show no signs of stopping. So thank you, sir. Brutal Deluxe, were they a software house back in the day and now more a, a hobby coalition, or, or is that what they always were? Or what was the story with them? I think Brutal Deluxe was uh, mostly two or three French programmers who released... Uh, I know they're, back in the 90s, their big hits were... Uh, a 2GS version of, of the game Lemmings and some graphics utilities. And those were commercial products or were they giveaways? Uh, <laughs> they were shareware, but you know, if, oh, you, okay. if you, yeah, if you talk nicely to them, you could get yourself a, cop- a free copy. And now they've, they've pretty much released everything, uh, as freeware. Nice. Yeah. And not to minimize their importance in the history of the Apple II, but I misspoke when I said that they were a staggering 30 years old. They were not founding, founded in 1983. They turned 20 last year, so they were founded uh, in 1992. Okay. Oh, so only two decades. I know, honestly. <laughs> they're not even old enough to drink, or they Come are on, this why, year now. But. Why are we even talking about these guys? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're just kids, honestly. Yeah, 92, uh, that would make sense because that's the year that the um, – that the 2GS was discontinued, and I know that a big part of their programming efforts were to try and keep the software community alive uh, as people began to migrate to other platforms. Well, I would say that they've succeeded, and they continue to do so with the latest release, not only of the Mr. Sprite utility, but also of Zephyr, a new Apple II game previously written decades ago by Froggy Software and unreleased when the company went out of business. Brutal Deluxe has been collaborating with the original programmers and copyright holders of Zephyr, and they have now released an Apple II version. In fact, they are going all out and are selling it just like it was sold back in the day, in a Ziploc bag with an actual printed manual. They want to bring us back to the glory days of uh, retail software and gaming. And they put the very first couple of units on eBay for people to buy. I bid 75 euros on it and was outbid. Uh, I believe the final sale was 81 euros, which is about 105 United States dollars. There is a YouTube video that Antoine uploaded 
back in January of this year where you can watch the game being played. It's a black and white game. It is slightly reminiscent of an old Square game for the Ape Nintendo called 3D World Runner, where you are piloting a ship as the horizon scrolls toward you. Also, I guess a little bit like the arcade Star Wars game in that sense, and you're just trying to avoid obstacles and shoot down enemies before they shoot you down. What do you guys think about this move to packaged products as opposed to disc images? I think it's an interesting niche. I think if a bunch of people started doing it, that we would probably find that the market's limited. Um, but I think to have things out there that are packaged in the old school way is an awesome novelty. And in terms of releasing this code that never got to see the light of day back before, I, I think better late than never. And it, it's exciting that that work can finally get out there. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's not unusual for new physical games to come out for old systems. About three years ago, there was a new 8-bit Nintendo game called Battle Kid Fortress of Peril. And it was just an indie game, and some guys figured out how to turn it into a physical cartridge and sell it. They sold for a rather high price because there were so few of them, and it's now a collector's item. And I think the same will be true of Zephyr. Even if you can get your hands on a disc image and play it to your heart's content, it won't be the same as actually having one of the original floppy disks and manuals and Ziploc bag. I mean, yeah, you can make a floppy disk with ADT Pro or the CFFA 3000, but to actually have one that came from the distributor is going to be a rare thing. Yeah, I sort of liken it to the uh, the feelies that you used to get in the old Infocom boxes. Right. You know, you can play those games on any web browser nowadays, but how many of them actually have the cloth map or the tokens? Sure. Well, you can even play it on your iPad um, with the with uh, Activision's official Treasures of, Lost Treasures of Infocom release, and it's got photocopies or it's got PDFs of the manuals and, and photos of the original feelies. But it's for me, that's just a different experience. It's not the same. That's right, and it's fun to see the the baggy release too. I think that's really cool. I, I have a few pieces of. Uh, software that came in baggies rather than boxes, and every time I see them, I just think, wow, that's kind of cool. The release of Zephyr was preceded by Antoine posting mysterious photos to the Facebook group Apple II Enthusiast in the days leading up to the game's release. Small little snippets of screenshots and box art hinting at what it might be. And that came on the heels of another big event on the Facebook group when David Schmenk posted a video of something that he had done. Do you want to tell us more about that, Mike? Sure. Well, uh, David Schmeck has figured out how to use a an old parallel Connectix Quick Cam uh, to feed video directly to his Apple IIe through uh, an Apple Parallel card, uh, which I'm sure to to maybe some of our younger listeners, if there are any, uh, is doesn't sound like that big a deal, but it's quite a technical feat. Um, the uh, initial release, I guess if you want to call it that, was in, in low-res mode on the Apple II and uh, was pretty much real-time as far as the video transfer. He, he put up uh, several uh, YouTube videos that you can watch of this thing in action. Um, and then about a week later, he released a high-res version. Now, the high-res version definitely suffers uh, at the hands of the 1 megahertz 6502. You get about one frame per second. But uh, uh, And then several weeks after that, David put up the documentation on exactly how he did it. So if you want to build your own, you can. Yeah, it was very impressive to see real-time black and white blocky 
video being streamed onto an Apple II. I mean, I don't care about the quality, just the fact that it was happening at all was impressive. I also think it's interesting that he chose Facebook to make his debut. Usually, uh, social media is where stories get retold as opposed to debuting. It's, it's certainly a legitimate outlet. I just am surprised that it hasn't happened before. Well, I, as far as I know, the what the the face the Apple II enthusiasts Facebook group is up over six hundred members now, and it's very active, and it's easy to post a video there. Whereas if you're doing it through something like Compsys Apple II, you would need to put the video somewhere else and then provide a link. Uh, where where with Facebook, you can I mean, as much as I hate to say it, it's pretty convenient. You can just click on the the video right there and watch it without having to go to another web page or um, resource. Oh, I, I didn't know about that group. I need to go out there and join that. And the last item, not for the news section this month, but in the mass media news, is a Lego Apple II. This was developed by, I believe his name is uh, Chu Kung, and he took those old lethally edge gouging objects, the bricks that everybody loves to play with as kids, and he built an Apple II, and it's actually quite a good one. It has a removable lid, so you can see the slots inside. It has a monitor, a floppy drive or two, and, an act- and a keyboard. Of course, it's all non-functional, and the Flickr photos I'm looking at don't have anything alongside it to represent the scale, so I don't know how big this is, but it is a Lego Apple II, which is pretty cool. It reminds me a lot of Steve Wyrick's Minecraft Apple II that he built a couple years ago. Did anybody else take a look at this? Well, it looks very similar to the... Um to the Lego Macintosh that came out a little while ago. The Retro Maccast guys interviewed the the model builder that made that. I wonder if this was inspired in any way by that. Oh, I'm not sure I remember that happening. So what, there's just a, all of a sudden a Lego resurgence, a Lego fad? Well, uh, apparently there's a very large and active Lego building community out there. That you know They, they build a lot of custom stuff, and this was... This was something that got made. Isn't there even a page on the Lego website where you can virtually create your own product and then create a kit that has just the parts for that? Well, in fact, uh, there is a product that Lego makes that you download. It's a full-featured CAD program that, that comes with Lego templates and things like that. They used to have a link in this CAD program whose name is escaping me at the moment. Uh, where you, once you built your design, or once you finished your design, it would tell you what bricks you, you needed and you could just order them directly through that program from, uh, Lego. They've removed that functionality. I guess it wasn't making them a lot of money, but it still tells you what bricks you need to order from Lego and they'll send you the kit that you want. How neat. So there could be an Apple II Lego kit for sale. There could. Now that I would buy. I wouldn't buy the schematic to put on my wall, but I'd buy the Legos. Lego Designer, I think is what it's called. That sounds about right. And the creativity that I've seen with people doing Lego designs is just amazing. So, you know, it's it's very pixely art, too. It looks kind of 8-bit, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. The guy that built the, the Lego Macintosh was talking in the interview with the, the Retro Maccast guys, and he said his collection of, of bricks that he has on hand is around, like, 40,000 or something. And I guess his collection is dwarfed by by some of these other fanatics out there. Wow. Well, Lego's built an impressive foundation for this Apple II, but there is another Apple product whose foundation has recently fallen apart, and that is the Biopic Jobs. That's lowercase j, capital OBS. 
It was originally scheduled to be released on April 19th, starring Ashton Kutcher as Steve Jobs and Josh Gad as Steve Wozniak. A clip of it having premiered online back in January, which Steve Woz was not a fan of. Whether due to that reception or due to other factors that remain to be determined, the film has been delayed. It will not be releasing this April 19th, and in fact, they have not announced another release date yet at all. So we don't know if they are waiting for a more opportune debut, or if they are actually going back to the drawing board and reshooting some scenes, like in Snakes on a Plane, to make it even better. Or what? So I, I don't know what the cause for the delay might be. Any theories out there in Open Apple Land? Well, I know that it's screened fairly well at uh, what is, what's the, the film? Macworld, iWorld. No, oh, South by Southwest. Sundance. Sundance. I think, I think, it, I think it, the whole thing premiered at Sundance in Utah a couple of months ago. And as I as I recall, it, it was fairly well received. So it could be uh, it could be sometimes studios will do this because they need to reshoot scenes like they did with that that the new GI Joe film, or maybe they think that if they delay it to, to later in the summer, they can have a bigger opening and make more money. So that Steve Jobs film has been delayed, but apparently there's another one coming out, and still not one based on the Walter Isaacson biography. This one is called I, Steve, and it's supposed to debut pretty soon. I think it's coming out this month. But I'm not really sure that this is a real film, because the trailer I saw is on the website Funny or Die. And that doesn't really give it an air of legitimacy to me. Feels uh, dubious. Yeah, and the actor they have playing Steve Jobs is Justin Long. You know, like, I'm a Mac, and I'm a PC, that guy. I mean, granted, he is a legitimate actor. Actor, He was in Idiocracy and Die Hard 4. So this film is supposed to come out April 15th, and I guess Funny or Die will have more information about that. Yeah, keep your eyes peeled for I, Steve, lowercase I, capital S, lowercase T. I, I'd never even heard of this film before that trailer that came out just earlier this month. Have you guys heard of it? No, I think this is just a funnier die parody for, you know, a film that's not, that's not, that they have no plans to make this film. I'd believe that. Because otherwise, it just seems like there's a glut of Steve Jobs films, and why would anybody want to enter such a crowded market? The, the trailer, though, uh, the I Steve trailer isn't funny, which is weird. If it's going to be a parody, you think that they would get that across in this one and a half minute preview? Was it perhaps meant to be funny and just failed? <laughs> now, what do you think about the, about all the uh, celebritizing of Steve Jobs, Mister Earl? I think people are anxious for more information about him, and a uh, you know coming across in a way that they can easily relate to and consume. So uh, I, I was actually planning to go see that Ashton Kutcher movie when it came out and not sure, again, like you were saying, why they're dragging their feet on the release. But um, yeah, I'll go see that one when it comes out. If this other one's a parody, or if they intended it to be a parody of the Jobs movie, then kind of the joke's on them because the movie they were going to parody isn't going to release. So, right. Oops. Well, if it is a parody, it'll probably be released solely online. We can watch it anytime, anywhere. The Ashton Kutcher film, maybe they're trying to make it a summer blockbuster like Die Hard 4 and release it later in the summer. Who knows? And then there's also the Walter Isaacson film that Sony is producing. It's interesting what you said about people wanting this story in an easily consumable format. That Walter Isaacson book is intimidating in its bulk. 
But it's a very easy read, I found. You can actually get through it pretty quickly. Can you estimate how long it took you? Uh, less than a week, maybe four days to read. Okay. That's not too bad. No. Because, I mean, some of us in the tech world and those who have been in that world for a long time have lived and breathed this stuff. But I, I think still for a lot of people, they may not be aware of some of the history surrounding Steve Jobs and Apple. And uh, they're definitely aware of Apple. I mean, who isn't? Uh, you'd, you'd have to be living on Mars to not know about Apple these days, but they might not have been as tuned in. And so I, I think from a historical perspective for them, it could be a lot of new information and very interesting. Yeah. I, I definitely don't disagree that these films should come out. And I know a lot of Apple II fans were not pleased with the Ashton Kusher scene that was released in January, but that's not going to stop me from seeing the film. I mean, whether it's fact or fiction, I still want to see what their interpretation of that aspect of computer history is. Sure. Just like Pirates of Silicon Valley, how that particular film didn't get everything right, uh, sequence of events or some of the you know things were obviously dramatized and the characters more like caricatures in a sense because they had to try to amplify these aspects of their personality to get them across in an hour and a half or whatever it was. But it was still very enjoyable. I've watched it several times. Yeah, I remember watching it once around 2004 and not being all that impressed with it, but I think that was, uh, or maybe I was impressed with it, but I was told I shouldn't be. I don't remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's, it's possible, but it was a fun film regardless. Okie dokie, that's the end of our movie segment of Open Apple, and now we are on to the games. We used to have that name the game section where we put all this stuff in, and now that we don't have a section, we just put it last on the news section. So we have some stuff to talk about, such as, let's see, let's start with PAX East, because that personally involves a whole bunch of people in the Apple II community that I know, and that our dear listeners know, or want to know, or should know. Anyway, PAX is Penny Arcade Expo, and as we spoke about it, on last month's show, it was held in Boston, the fourth annual event, and it attracted 80,000 gamers to Boston, those being computer gamers, video gamers, board gamers, and card gamers. Now, they have a retro room dedicated to old computers, even the Commodore 64, and old video game systems for everything from the Atari 2600 to the Sega Saturn. But historically, they have not had an Apple II, so a bunch of Apple II users and I conspired to correct that. Uh, Wayne Arthurton, Mike McGinnis, Paul Hagstrom, and I all contributed bits and pieces and put together an Apple II gaming rig that we coordinated with Joe Santulli of the Video Game History Museum in Las Vegas, Nevada. And we brought that Apple II to the uh, to PAX East with some logistical support from Mr. Thomas Ari and got it hooked up. I stopped into that room throughout the course of the three-day event, and every single time this machine was in use, sometimes by just one person, usually a pair of people, one time as many as six people, all chiming in and contributing to what they think the next move in Oregon Trail should be. That was one of the most popular games. Castle Wolfenstein was up there, and a little bit of Load Runner, I think, and Karateka. But yeah, it was a popular machine, and it will stay with the Video Game History Museum, who will now be able to exhibit that machine as they go on tour to other events like PAX Prime in Seattle or the Game Developers Conference in California 
or MAGFest in Maryland. So there is now a floating Apple II out there that we all hope will have some love and appreciation from a new generation of retro computing enthusiasts. That's awesome. And uh, congratulations for you guys' uh, uh, you know, efforts in getting that integrated into that traveling museum and, and show. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I confess, I actually didn't contribute any hardware or software. I was just the guy who took all the credit for coordinating it. But everybody who I mentioned who contributed stuff was a big help. Uh, Wayne provided the CPU and the floppy drive. And uh, Paul Hagstrom originally was going to supply just the monitor. But then he went to PAX to try out this unit that we'd already set up, and he discovered something that the rest of us had not, which was that the joystick wasn't working very well. So he, on his own time, went back to his office in Boston, got a joystick from his own private collection, went back to PAX and swapped it in so that everybody else would have a working joystick. And Mike supplied the hardware, uh, not the hardware, the software, without which and all this would have been for naught because nobody would have anything to play. So yeah, it was a real team effort, and it came together, and it worked great. So I was very happy to see that be a part of PAX. We have some other gaming stuff in the news this month. Not-so-happy news, and this uh, ties into PAX, because PAX covers a lot of modern games, and LucasArts has been producing Star Wars games for decades. They have a spotty reputation for Star Wars games. There have been some good ones, there have been some bad ones, but LucasArts is probably best known for their non-Lucasfilm games, especially in the 80s and 90s, such as Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle, and the Monkey Island games, some of which came to the Apple II. Unfortunately, with the recent acquisition of the entire Lucas family by Disney, it has been decided that LucasArts is no longer needed, and they have been shuttered, and all hundreds of employees have been laid off. I don't know what this means for the copyright or trademarks on those point-and-click adventure games that I mentioned. I hope that some of them will revert to Tim Schafer and Ron Gilbert over at Double Fine Productions. Also, some former LucasArts employees left years ago to found Telltale Games, which went on to create the Walking Dead game that tore up the charts on the Xbox last year, and iOS and other devices. It's too bad that this company is out of business, and it's especially sad whenever hundreds of employees lose their jobs. But as many websites have pointed out, the LucasArts that we all remember so fondly is the LucasArts of 20 years ago. And that LucasArts has kind of been lost and forgotten for some time now. So it's not really a big blow to the modern gaming scene to lose today's LucasArts. Did any of you grow up playing some of their games? I played one of their games. I played Day of the Tentacle. And I thought that game was just hilarious. Now, that is a sequel to Maniac Mansion. You didn't play Maniac Mansion? I didn't, and I didn't even know it was a sequel. Huh. It was one of those situations where you buy a computer or a video card or something like that. I think it might have come with a compact computer that I purchased, and it was just one of the bundled pieces of software that came with it. And so I hadn't installed it for a while after I got the computer, but then I did, and I started playing it. And I, Actually, my wife and I played through that game, and that was just... Uh, really enjoyable and, uh, you know, offbeat. Yes, the sense of humor is definitely what set those games apart. Mm-hmm. I do own a copy of Day of the Tentacle. It wouldn't play on my modern Mac, but I was able to turn the CD into an image that I was able to play on a, a scum emulator on my Nintendo Wii, which I hacked, which sounds like a lot of effort, and it was. Uh, the sc- scum is the scripting language that LucasArts used for a lot of their games like Maniac Mansion and Monkey Island. Uh, 
unfortunately, the Wii emulator stuttered a lot, and I just got tired of waiting for the game to keep loading between the lines of dialogue. But if you think about it, the Wii, with its pointer-based Wii remote controller, is the perfect system for a point-and-click adventure. So the mm-hmm. interface worked great. It was just the, the lag time that I couldn't get past. The only LucasArts title I, I ever played with any regularity was actually a weird futuristic soccer-type game called Ball Blazer. Ball Blazer? I've never even heard of it. Was that for the Apple II? It was, and several other the home computers huh. of the day. Our friend who does the intro and outro for this show was a big fan of The Dig, which I was able to buy on Steam for the Mac. I never got around to playing it, but it's there for me anytime I want to get around to it. Uh, moving on, speaking of old games ported to modern systems, Another World. We have spoken about this game before under the name of Out of This World. I played it on the Super Nintendo, but it even got ported to the Apple II GS, and last year there was an iOS version released. Well, I somehow missed this when it happened on February 20th of this year, but Another World has now been ported to the Mac, which is a far friendlier interface in my opinion. I haven't actually tried it, but I did play the iOS version, and I was awful at it just because... I don't really think it's a good interface for that kind of game. But you can now play Out of This World on the Mac. It's available in the Mac App Store. Let me pull it up in there to get the price for you. And it looks like the 20th anniversary edition of Another World for the Mac is $9.99, which is a pretty good deal. Not bad at all. I wish this game had been available when I was a high school teacher because I was teaching my students how to write technical documents, and I thought it would be fun to give them this game, which is absolutely bizarre and not give them the manual, and have them just try to figure out what the buttons do, what you're supposed to do, how you interact with the environment, and then have them write a manual for the game as they deciphered it. But back in 2004, there was just no way to get 16 students playing this game. Oh well. Another life. Another world. Mike, you want to talk to us about Eamon Deluxe? Sure. Uh, Frank Black over at the Eamon... Adventurers Guild Online has released the latest uh, Eamon Deluxe newsletter. It's a free PDF that you can download. Uh, it's a few pages, and this month they talk about the Eamon Micro Adventure Contest that you can join, and they review a few uh, a few Eamon titles, including the recently introduced Stronghold of Cardur. So this is a new Eamon adventure that just came out? I think Stronghold actually came out, I want to say, last summer, but the... Newsletter isn't released with any kind of regularity, so they're just now getting to the reviews. Is the newsletter exclusively for Eamon Deluxe, which is for the PC? Uh, it looks like it is. It's called the official Eamon Deluxe newsletter. Yeah, I'm looking at this. It's Volume 3, Issue 1, and it measures nine pages in length, which you'd never see in print. And it looks like a pretty easy read. I'll put this on my iPad to read on the train to work tomorrow morning. Yeah, definitely, definitely worth a look if you're into to uh, text adventures in general, or if you're an Eamon fan. I see that in Volume Three, Issue Two, which he's now working on, there will be a history of Apple II GS attempts at porting Eamon, which I believe you wrote a blog post about, Mike, on A2 Central a while back. Yeah, there were a couple of, um, as you said, attempts to port Eamon to the Apple II GS, which for whatever reason never got off the ground, and. I know that Frank had posted an extensive, the actual article that Frank posted, uh, my blog, my blog entries just pointed over to that, uh, was fairly extensive and he was planning to expand it for, for the newsletter. So I'm, I'm interested to see what more he has to add to those stories. Cool. Yeah. I always like to hear kind of behind the scenes tales and anecdotes about 
uh, development of Apple II hardware and software. Earl, are you a text adventure guy? Uh, not really. I like them, but I'm not good at them. <laughs> so, uh, I don't think anybody's good at them. <laughs> we, uh, a while back, my son and daughter and I had taken a crack at Zork, the original. Yep. And, you know, we got out the graph paper and we're drawing the maps and, you know, doing the whole nine yards, but couldn't get very far. Uh, so, uh, it might not be accurate to say that I don't like them because I really do like them, but I can never solve them. I don't think I've ever played one all the way through. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat. Did you like Jason Scott's documentary on the subject, Get Lamp? I loved that documentary. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to like in there. He tells good stories. Yes. Um, it's amazing how he puts together a montage of the interviews with various people and uh, basically weaves the story along through the, the words of others and doesn't actually do very much of his own narrating in those. So, yeah, Get Lamps, uh, definitely, even if you weren't into text adventures at all, it's a great view into that particular aspect of computing. And one last news item, uh, again, going back to the heyday of Apple II gaming and the days of Maniac Mansion and Eamon, we have Ultima. How many of you grew up with Ultima? I did, I did, I did. <laughs> and you, Earl? Again, not me. I guess what? I just I, What is I was wrong with you? It. Why do we sure. have this guy on the show, man? Honestly, I, I told you to get Brent Spiner. <laughs> I tried. He told me to get Earl. <laughs> his, his stunt double. That's, That's all right. we can afford. <laughs> now, that was supposed to be confidential. <laughs> we need to launch a Kickstarter to get good guests on the show. Well, anyway... Since all we have is Earl, let's continue. <laughs> Richard Garriott, a.k.a. Lord British, the creator of the Ultima series and the world of Britannia, or Britannia, he has launched a Kickstarter to do a new Ultima. It's not the Ultima by name, because that name is now owned by Origin, which is part of Electronic Arts. But he still owns the name Lord British, and he also owns the genius that made the Ultima world in the first place. And he is bringing that to bear on a new game called Lord British's Shroud of the Avatar, Forsaken Virtues. Avatar, of course, was the protagonist in many of the Ultima games, such as uh, Ultima 4, uh, Quest of the Avatar, I think Ultima 4 was called. Ultima 4 was Quest of the Avatar, yes. Yeah. And he asked for a million dollars on Kickstarter, and he raised two million. He launched the Kickstarter with a live stream interview with our friends at Rooster Teeth, there's that name again, since both Richard Garriott and Rooster Teeth are in Austin, Texas. And he raised his first million in about a week, and in the remaining three weeks raised another million. He had stretch goals all the way up to 2.5, so he didn't get all the way up there. But I think that's fine. The $2.5 million stretch goals was virtual reality support. And who wants to you know, put a helmet on and play Ultima? But this game is Hoping to be released in October of 2014, I think it is a massively multiplayer online game, but the focus will be on the single-player experience. And here is the Apple II tie-in to the rewards. If you pledged $10, that is what Richard Garriott called the guilt pledge. If you ever pirated an Ultima game or griefed somebody in Ultima Online, here's your chance to repent. For $10 donation, you'll receive a clean conscience and Lord British's undying gratitude. At the other end of the reward spectrum is the $10,000 reward. 
there were, let's see, 11 of these. No, uh, 22 of these. Anyway, uh, for $10,000, you could get a copy of Akalabeth, which was also known as Ultima Zero. That is his first RPG that laid the groundwork for Ultima. One of the rarest games ever made, and he says that he will give you one from his own collection. This rare game is in the original packaging that Richard made himself and sold only a dozen copies of before it was picked up by a publisher. So it looks like these are not ones that went on retail and then got picked up by a collector. These are ones that he kept for himself, and he is parting with them for $10,000 each, and it looks like nine people picked it up at that price. Did either of you back this Kickstarter like I did? I owed him $10, so yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Earl? I didn't do it. Um, Now I'm almost wishing I had. But that's that's amazing. There must have been, uh, there must be, I should put it in the present tense, a gigantic fan base for this, for them to hit $2 million just on the possibility of this uh, sequel coming out. It must be an amazing amount of enthusiasm out there. Well, one of the things that Richard Garriott did right with this Kickstarter is that he had a lot of assets already to show. The game is well into development, and he was able to show that off. Uh, One of the rewards, for example, is uh, pledge $25 or more, and you'll get early access to the game's alpha and beta stages starting December of this year, even though the game isn't coming out until October of next year. So it's a, it's a pretty attractive package that he put together, and he has issued a ton of updates. Uh, there are videos. There is an endorsement by Ernest Klein, author of Fanboys and Ready Player One. So he, he really put together a good campaign, as you would expect from Lord British. I think, again, showing if you've got street cred, that Kickstarter can be a fabulous way for you to get something accomplished. Right, if you already have an audience. And nowadays, million-dollar Kickstarters aren't all that unusual. Brian Fargo went online recently to do a new Planescape Torment RPG, and he got his million dollars in the first eight hours, I think. Similarly, Veronica Mars is shooting a film, and they got $2 million in the first day. It's just ridiculous how much money people can collect on Kickstarter ever since Tim Schafer blew the top off with his Double Fine Adventure last February. Well, maybe this time Garriott will put in better um, safeguards for his Lord British character. Oh, you're talking about the one time he was able to get killed? Yes. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, I, it's interesting that he does have the rights to the name Lord British. We talked previously on Open Apple about how Electronic Arts might do a game with Lady British, which isn't quite the same. Uh, I backed this project, and I don't even like MMOs, and I don't know that I'll even play it when I get access to it. But this is Richard freaking Garriott. He invented Ultima and then went into space. He's earned my money. (laughs) (laughs) So, yes, I will back Richard Garriott in whatever he wants to do. He's earned at least that chance. People should just walk up to him and give him money. I would. I I think that's what they did in this case. For the opportunity to walk up to Lord British, I would (laughs) give him money. (laughs) What's it worth to you? Hold on to your wallet as we look at the latest Apple pickings. Our first eBay item this month is one that I found. It's uh, Stephen Buggy. Budgie? I'm not sure how you pronounce that. 
Uh, he's a, a long-time Apple II user and um, built a reputation around building high-end power supplies to replace the ones that came with your – that originally came in your Apple II computer. He has sold his collection of computist magazines. Uh, it was the complete 89-issue run. Um and I just thought that was inter- very interesting because of you know, my history with computist. And um, as I'm reading through the, the the item description is sort of it takes a little bit of effort to get through uh, because it uses a lot of different fonts and text size and and uh, font sizes, and it's a wall of text in some places. Uh, and it, if you include it in the magazine set was 72 original issues, 17 photocopied issues, five photocopied duplicates. But he also threw in his Wildcard Plus interface card, which was a, a copy card a cra- that that you could use to help copy software. Um, and the set sold for $361. Um, but I, I thought that that was an interesting item because you don't often see a lot of computers magazines. When you do, they're usually... Uh, individually sold for $15 a piece or something like that. So, And that's all I have for eBay. Earl? Well, I picked a set of 10 games. They're actually uh, from Atari Soft, but for the Apple II. And there's some cool titles in here. They're brand new, shrink-wrapped, and it looked like they were going for $100 for the whole set. And there's just something about having the shrink-wrapped boxes. You know that the air from um, computing <laughs> from back in the eighties is is still captured in these boxes, and you can you can let it out. You can let out some of that eighties air, and then uh, I, I guess you won't know whether the discs are going to work after they've been sitting around for that amount of time. But the disc images aren't that hard to find, for better or for worse. Um, I just think it's cool to have the original shrink wrap and. Uh, I actually do like a lot of these arcade titles that are in here. So so that was my pick, and I guess we'll see whether or not it's worth $99. The other thing is, uh, I think you have more luck finding some of the arcade games, which, to be honest, are more the ones that I played, um, than uh, certain shrink wrap Infocom titles or other things like that. Uh, seem to go for astronomical prices, if you can even find them. Um, I think probably one rare title in that genre would go for as much as this entire pile of Atari Soft games is going for. So these are more affordable, too. I guess we'll see how much they bid up to. But So that was my pick. Would you open the games if you bought them? Oh, absolutely. I'm like Carrington in that regard. I would get them, and I would open them, um, and yeah, I, I know that there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth of other collectors out there that would say it was sacrilege, but I would absolutely do that. You want to know what 1982 smells like? <laughs> uh, well, I was there. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I remember it. It smells like uh, it, Duran Duran, doesn't it? Oh, boy. <laughs> Well, you should That's pair a- you should pair that with the arcade ambiance that Mike and Carrington use on their other podcasts, and you'll have a full all the senses full on. Wasn't there a new search engine from Google that would let me Google what 1982 smelled like? Didn't they call it Google Nose? That's correct. That came out just this past Monday, April first. 
Yes. So if you don't know what 1982 smelled like, for instance, my kids have no idea, then that search engine could be very instrumental for you. Yeah. I don't know. I'm a little suspicious. <laughs> Something doesn't smell right, Mike? Exactly. <laughs> Something smells fishy. <laughs> There's something rotten in the state of Google. Ouch. And it looks like there's one more eBay item. Are you interested in talking about that one too? Sure. Only if you guys know what the heck it is and what it does. I think either of you are going to know more than I do. Um, It looks like a... uh, It's Vintage Computer Museum. This is... Yeah, it's, it's a clone of a Z80 card. But it doesn't look like it comes with any software. So you'd have to have the... What's that? Uh, Most of them didn't because they were compatible with... uh, um, um, Applied Engineering made a series of Z80 cards, and I think Microsoft did as well, that that could all use the same or slightly modified CPM. Um, Now, I don't know if this is... I, I know that back in the 80s, or when Apple II hardware was selling like hotcakes, it was common for companies in, in Taiwan and places like that to produce these knockoff cards. I don't know if this is one of these from way back when or if it's one a, a more modern clone. I don't know, but I do know that I'm a CPM enthusiast and that having uh, some new old stock Z80 hardware to pop in that Apple IIe would be kind of exciting for me. So that's what interested me about this particular auction. I didn't know before I picked that, though, about the um, 20 megahertz Z80 card that you were talking about earlier, Mike. So, uh, you know, in retrospect, that might actually pique my interest more. Well, yeah, um, if you're willing to wait, like like we had talked about, um, the run that Alex... Uh, that Alex got the parts for was pre-sold out, so he wasn't making cards for any new customers. And uh, it may be a while before he produces any more, uh, probably mostly on 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 the basis of you know chip availability and that sort of thing. So if you don't want to wait, this might be a way to go. Although it's not 20 megahertz and it is more expensive, I think, than Alex's cards. Right. And as it turns out, um, I've never had one of these, so in essence, I've waited 30 years. I think, you know, a little while longer isn't going to be a problem. Sure. This has been a lovely podcast, even though, as you know, we, we couldn't get our good friend and pal, Mr. Brent. But, you know, Earl, you didn't do too bad. Hey, I'm a proud Spiner fam. It could be that I am Brent Spiner and just masquerading as Earl. He does a really good Earl Evans impression from what I've heard. <laughs> no, you're far too robotic to be Brent Spiner. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, oh, and, you know... My skin is way too yellow. <laughs> well, in that case, every retro computing enthusiast is Brent Spiner. <laughs> yes, we all have the hacker tan, don't we? <laughs> hacker tan, I like it. All righty. Well, Earl, I, I'm sorry to see another episode of Open Apple end because it means that I'll never talk to you again. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, parting is such sweet sorrow. I do hope you have a wonderful time in Japan, and I do hope that before then we get to hear your voice not only on RCR, but on RetroBits, Chicken Lips, and Next Without Four. Definitely cross your fingers, and I will do my best to make that happen. If if each of those shows is monthly, then I'll still be able to hear you every week because you'll have four shows. Yeah, which is, you know, uh, in many circles considered a brand of torture.
<laughs> Having to listen to you every week? Yes. Well, I look forward to being tortured. Ooh. No, let's cut that out. Oh, boy. There's, maybe that's a – there's an editing opportunity. There's our blooper. Especially after last month's blooper. Um, well, I look forward to hearing your voice, Earl, however frequent or infrequent it may be, wherever, whether you're airing it from Japan or Oregon or Kansas City. I'm glad to have you as a member of the retro computing community, even if your favorite computer isn't an Apple II, although we all know it should be. <laughs> we do. I sort so, of like you too, Earl. Yeah. Awesome. Well, the feeling's mutual there, Mike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm glad for the opportunity to tolerate you. <laughs> well, it's been a pleasure being on the podcast. At least, you know, that that's what I'll say here. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thanks. No, thanks. Thanks, you guys, for having me on. Well, thank hey, thanks, you, Earl. Earl. I'll t- see you around. Alrighty. This has been the Open Apple Podcast. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback by visiting us on the web at www.open-apple.net. You're not in the Facebook group? You should join. I'll send you a link. Oh, uh, I think I can add you. Oh, cool. That'd be awesome. No, don't let him join. (laughs) (laughs) Don't let these Commodore guys in there. That's right. It'll ruin our exclusive little club. (laughs) There goes the neighborhood.